Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. And we're talking about life sciences. And I'm joined this week by Derek Jones, who's Chief Executive of Babraham Research Campus, by Chris Waters, who's Head of Life Sciences for JLL, and by Colleen O'Connell, all the way from North America. Colleen is Senior Vice President for Leasing East Coast and UK Markets at Biomed Realty. Derek, come straight to you. There's been a lot written over the last year or so about quite a lot of supply coming onto the market in the UK, particularly in Oxford and, and particularly Cambridge, where you're based. Now, how much of this supply is in the right place? How much of it is in the wrong place? And how should we be looking to coordinate this so that we get the right things built? That's a really good question. I think there is a risk that some of it will get built in the wrong place. And an ongoing discussion that I have with many of my colleagues in Cambridge, and we do try to work a little bit more collaboratively than people probably think we do in terms of just discussing what's going on. And I think what we've got to make sure is that we're building the right sort of laboratory space for companies at the right time in the right location. So I think there is a risk that because this is at the moment quite an attractive market and people would like to have part of the action looking at developments that really might not stand alone, if that makes sense, could be more challenging. But there is a significant demand and wrong would it be for me to say, oh, that's going to be in the wrong place. But it does make you think that maybe some of these things might be more challenging than others because they're in the wrong place, but with the wrong type of laboratory capability. Hmm. So Derek, I'm interested for you to explain to listeners some of the differences of the various parties here. So you're based at the Babraham Research Campus. So it'd be good to explain the Babraham Research Institute and the campus and also some of your background because you began your career as a medicinal chemist at Merck some years back. So you've been involved with all sorts of things in the private and academic sectors and, you know, a very, very, very big voice in the sector. It'd be good to kind of get a bit of a background on Babraham because it's obviously a world-leading institution, but some listeners might not be familiar with it. I'm very happy to do that. So let's do the Babraham Institute. So the, the campus is a co-location of world-class academic science, and that comes from the Babraham Institute. And the Babraham Institute's been in existence since 1948 just after the war. So this campus was established just after the war, initially for food production. And that was looking about how we could create more healthy animals for food production. That's all changed now. It's all about life sciences. And the Babram Institute, which is strategically funded by the UK taxpayer through UKRI and the BBSRC, is really looking at healthy ageing. And the issue really there is, if I can put it this way, everybody's lifespan is getting longer. We all know we're getting older and living longer. Our health span has not moved much. And so what we're trying to look at in the Institute is go, how can we address that? How can we live long lives, but healthy lives? And that's about understanding the biology of aging. So the Institute has been here, very successful, scientifically excellent, world-class PhD students from Cambridge University, two, three fellows of the Royal Society, that sort of stuff. But what we've done is we've co-located life science companies on the campus. So we've got about 2,000 people here now. Originally, we were set up to support really early stage companies who would otherwise struggle to find laboratory capabilities. And so on the campus now, we support early stage companies. Literally one or two people want a bit of lab space in a communal lab right up to buildings with 180 people in. So we 
are here to create a community of entrepreneurs, scientists to work together to help develop the drugs of the future and build the businesses for the future. Mm. That was fascinating. So, Colleen, since 2017, I mean, you've been at Biomed Realty for nearly 10 years. So you've been there since 2014. It's about a decade. Yep. How did you get into it? I'd be interested to talk a bit about BMR's relationship with Babraham, because that's been running now since 2017. And you've been working in partnership with Derek and his team to deliver essentially mission critical startup space to support not just scale-ups, but also businesses as they grow and emerge. Day-to-day, you're based in Boston and you look after both East Coast and UK leasing. But how did you get into BMR and how have you found working with Abraham over the last six years? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> so I've been a Biomed. <laughs> say nice and, things, please. <laughs> I only have nice things to say about Derek, but I've been at Biomed now just about 10 years, as you noted. I came in from more of a financial background, worked in a financial planning and analysis role here in Boston at PricewaterhouseCoopers and then moved over to Fidelity Investments, but was really excited about the tangible nature of real estate investments and Biomed Realty, having a platform supporting the life sciences industry was very exciting to me. So I made the jump and moved here about 10 years ago. And ironically enough, Biomed has been in the UK for about 10 years. So we recently celebrated our 10-year anniversary of our first foray into the UK life science market. As we think about markets that we're operating in, we really like to be able to service the life science ecosystem in its entirety. And so part of what's been attractive for us in the UK is we've had the ability to have our campus over at Granta Park, you know, over 700, 800,000 square feet of life science product there. And was a natural synergy for us to want to partner up with the Abraham Research Campus. Obviously, Derek and team have created a world-class research campus there that's really supporting some of those earlier stage growing companies. And we always say in order for an ecosystem to be successful, you need those early stage companies to be able to graduate, have scale up space and have an area to expand. How does that work though? Are they not a bit too bitty for a business that has the scale of Biomed? See, we actually love it. And we recently completed or under construction on a 40,000 square foot building with Derek and the Babraham Research Campus. But For us, the ability to service those earlier stage companies is critical to the health of the ecosystem because the larger scale companies want to be in a location where you have the innovative, smaller scale companies as well. And so if you don't invest in the ecosystem as a whole, you're not servicing your smaller clients and also your larger clients. We always say innovation happens in proximity, not in isolation. You know, there's a reason why campuses like Abraham Research Campus really thrive and foster innovation. It's because of the campus feel and the environment that Derek and the team have been successful creating. So there's a natural synergy for Biomed to want to be part of that and help support that ecosystem. And I guess and, some and, of and the can struct- I just jump in? And I think the, one of the things that Colleen's just mentioned, which is really important to us, is the concept of it being a campus. Because that community feel and that sense of belonging and that sense of all trying to deliver the same sort of thing works really well for us here. And what we were trying to do with Biomed was to help create space for scale-up companies so we could move some into better, more 
suitable accommodation so we could continue to support some of the early stage companies. But the campus vibe is really important for us. And I guess some of the structural shifts that we've seen in the wider pharmaceutical and life sciences sectors over the last 20 years have pushed a lot more R&D downstream to the startup community where once it was probably, I'm guessing, Derek, when you began your career, far more of that R&D would have been done in-house. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the other issue is biological science is so vast now, even the biggest pharma company in the world can't even dream of covering most of the places. In essence, big pharma companies are now becoming clinical companies driving clinical research. Clearly, they do some of their own stuff, but licensing in, doing clinical research, which is really, really expensive, and then selling marketing drugs is what they're really into. And they cannot cover all the bases for life sciences. So they're going to have to look at the early stage companies. And my previous life when, you know, as you said, I started as a chemist and then I worked for a company called Kyra Science, which was based here in Cambridge. It's the first UK biotech product called Kyracane we developed, which is a local anaesthetic. You know, for those of you who've had epidurals or back surgery over the last five or seven years, you've all had Kyracane. And I was part of the team that built that. But then I set up a couple of life science companies and sold them, but we were selling into big pharma companies. So I think those early stage companies are really important because that's where the next big thing is going to come. Yeah, no, absolutely. Chris Waters, welcome back to Propcast. Great to see you. Let's talk about some of these points around ecosystems, campuses, and that supply that's now coming onto the market. Where are we at in terms of that demand supply imbalance? And are we seeing in the UK some froth at the top of the market? Is that froth starting to dissipate a bit? Where are we at? Thanks. Firstly, for having me back, I think in answer to your question, from a demand supply dynamic, it's still proving to be a very robust occupational market from a demand perspective, particularly in the established clusters like Cambridge. So we're tracking about a million square feet of active lab demand for space in the Cambridge market, which is very positive. I think we were tracking the US market closely in terms of what had happened on that side of the pond in terms of uh, fall in venture capital activity, it being harder for some of the more established companies to go public in the States. And, you know, how is that impacting occupational demand that we're seeing in the UK, particularly in those core markets? And we've certainly seen some of that froth, as you described it, come off in terms of the level of demand, but it's still proving to be really robust. So I think that's a very strong sign for the market. What about froth Uh, in terms of, I guess, sorry to interrupt you, Chris, I suppose I was meaning it more in terms of froth in the investment market and by that i mean companies who will remain nameless overpaying for sites by some margin purely to get a foothold in the market without necessarily properly underwriting the risks and understanding the nuances of what's obviously as derek said a very complex and multi-tiered bundle of different sectors it's been quite a journey since covid i think started the drive and focus from a number of investors and developers that weren't typically looking at this asset class before and life sciences has become very much a mainstream asset class it's no longer part of the alternatives bucket and when covid hit i think we saw a sharpened focus translate into competitive bidding for a number of sites that were coming forward to the market particularly across cambridge and oxford that meant that the number of bids coming through and the pricing that was coming through was strong. But and even in Stevenage, even in non-core locations, we've seen sites trade for, some would say, silly money. I think Stevenage might beg to differ in terms of whether it's a core location. I think it's very much an established cluster, but I understand where you're going with the question. I think 
the way that I would respond is to say that the number of bids that we were seeing was certainly part of what was driving some of the pricing activity, but it was also reflective of what we were seeing in the market in terms of continued growth around rents being achieved. I think what we've seen more recently, particularly against the broader macroeconomic picture that you outlined, is that we've just seen a significant consolidation. So there is a much smaller group of investor developers that are looking to deploy capital into the UK life sciences market. The focus is pretty much solely on Cambridge, Oxford and London. That's not to say that there isn't opportunity elsewhere in the UK. You know, we as JLL are actively working on sites across the UK, which have got good interest and will hopefully trade. But I think the number of parties certainly has reduced. And I think the people that are there to do business and deploy capital are the ones that are thematically bought into life sciences as a sector. They spend a lot of time getting under the skin of the operational nature of the real estate, which Derek and Clean have already touched on, and they're comfortable with the occupier that they want to attract and therefore how they underwrite the deal. It has been quite a journey though, I'd say. And Colleen, in terms of Biomed's approach, a big part of the business's USP is its platform. What does that mean in plain English? What is it that BMR does within its business that caters to early stage, late stage businesses, mature businesses? How is it working across the different disciplines of real estate from operations, investment development, all of these things that the platform was able to deliver? How do you make sure that they all run in harmony? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you think about our biomed platform, we've got over 15 million square feet of space across the core US market. So really Boston, Cambridge, leading the way. I say that because I sit in Boston, Cambridge, but San Francisco. But there's some wonderful developments in San Diego as well, in San <laughs> yes. Francisco. San Diego. I'm San a big Francisco. fan of the Illumina building on the West Coast, one of my favorite it pieces is. of life science architecture. Yeah, that's a beautiful campus. So we're really focused in on the core marketing in the UK, naturally being one of those core locations for life science. But part of the way we approach our investment thesis is we have a fully integrated Team. So when I say that, we've got operations, facilities, leasing, development, all of these functions in-house. And so when we look at a project in the market or we consider an investment, we're going in looking at it from all of those angles. Can we develop it correctly? Can we operate it correctly? Can we lease it to the right user? And we really focus in investing in scale in core locations. That allows us to bring a high conviction to the space. And so when we build space out, we're never building space for a tenant. We, we're always building space for the industry. And so if you think about life science, it's really challenging to underwrite a specific life science company. By nature, life science is risky. The research works, the research may not work. And so the way that Biomed has been comfortable getting our arms around our investments is we go in at scale, we go in with high conviction with our fully integrated platform, and we build for the industry. We don't build for a specific tenant. And because we believe in the long-term fundamentals of the life science industry, we're able to move forward and make some of these investments and operate at that level of scale and be part of that investor base that really pushes forward some of these core markets. But I can imagine if we didn't have the platform it would be a very hard environment to execute in right now because you do need to have that high conviction. And the lessons that we learn having operated facilities for over a decade 
you take those lessons and you build them into the next development that you build so that you're constantly on the cutting edge of building a mission critical facility. And I think it would be very challenging for us to execute at our caliber with our quality of facilities without that platform, without that experience across those functions and across those regions. Yeah, I mean, in tech terms, you would say that you've built quite a good moat around the business in that sense, and that the, you know, the barriers to entry are quite high. Derek Jones, let's dive a bit deeper into life sciences, if we may. You know, you've explained about the aging focus of much of the stuff that happens on the campus, but if we can just tap into your massive brain for a minute or two. This is quite scary, really. What listeners can't see is the scalpel I'm holding my left hand and the meat cleaver (laughs) in my right hand, but just bear with me, they are there. But Derek Jones, if we dive into the subsectors, let's call them that, of life sciences, what are the four or five disciplines that are high growth? What are those four or five conviction areas that you see really outperforming to use property parlance over the next few years? What are those areas that are going to experience exponential growth? The ones that are quite interesting and seems to be generating quite a lot of financing. And just to clarify, when I talked about the health and aging, the whole of the campus doesn't work about health and aging, only the Institute does. So I think biologics and monoclonal antibodies. So for people that aren't Derek Jones, what do those things mean? Oh my word, this is where my scientific colleagues go, what is he talking about? (laughs) So in essence, you know, when you take uh, aspirin or antibiotic, it's a small molecule basically. It's a chemical. But increasingly, drugs are biologicals using the body's own mechanisms to treat diseases. So, you know, we've all known we've had COVID vaccines. They're biologics. They're making our bodies do stuff, biological stuff. So monoclonal bodies are a really big market now that you're using the body's own mechanism for infection control and attacking disease you use the body's mechanisms doing that and monoclonal antibodies is one way of doing that and it's quite successful the biggest drug in the world is a monoclonal antibody the other one is really i think bringing together data and biology with apps there's a lot of work in this area of going how can we bring these two things together so you know there are some companies who are working on they're developing particular apps or particular technologies that would then help you use data to decide how best to treat a patient so there's a lot of that going on and there's a really interesting company here on the campus called Alchemab and what they're looking at is going why is it some people have pretty serious disease but don't get ill so what is it that they've got in their immune system that stops them getting ill with the disease that they've got and so it'll be somebody perhaps who has got pancreatic cancer who's lived for 10 12 years which is really really rare what is it that they have in their immune system that allows them to still be alive and fight off the cancer if we could identify what that is could you create a drug out of it so that's one of the companies here recommend that's a really interesting looking at healthy people to how you can treat sick people. So there's loads of stuff about how we understand that and the amount of data that's being generated is eye-watering. So I think data using biology, the biologics that we've already got using the body's own defense systems to treat disease, I think those are the big areas of excitement. But you know, this is a really big world and things come out all the time that you're thinking, oh, that's so smart. That's so smart. 
No, it's fascinating. I mean, it's very, very sci-fi. It's one of my favourite aeroplane films, I Am Legend with Will Smith, where he does exactly that. If you've not seen it, it's a great... I'm not sure. It's, a, it's a, not a great piece of cinema, but it's a very fun film about basically finding antidotes to world-cleaning diseases. But <laughs> let's move on. Chris Waters, I'm just keen to return to the point that Derek made at the start of the conversation around the value of campuses. And I wonder, within the JLL universe, within some of the different clients that you work with, some of the schemes that you've been advising on, what differences are you seeing between the approaches different parties are taking. Does the real estate universe properly get that point on campuses and on the value, on some of the softer stuff that actually is pretty critical to many firms in this space, particularly the high growth firms? I think there's been a very heightened focus around making sure that the environment that these individuals that companies are trying to employ and attract into their business and keep them on a site is of the highest caliber. So massive focus around amenity provision on the site so if you're going to create a true campus environment do you need to have retail on there perhaps more food and beverage a leisure offer some form of creche nursery how can we actually make the employees day-to-day lives as easy as possible so we're seeing a significant focus particularly on some of the larger schemes about how they can increase that amenity provision the sustainability agenda is definitely hitting the life sciences sector, I think, from an investor developer perspective, quite hard at the moment. I think it's naturally always been a bit challenged because of the operational nature of the real estate, the fact that it's uh, predicated on high use of power, high use of water, and a lot of companies, they're using single-use plastics in some case. It's just the very way... But also, you actual... can't put the waste in a green recycling bin either, can you? No. So fundamentally, there are different ways of how these buildings are operated, which need to be considered. But there's certainly a strong focus around embodied carbon. So how can they make sure they're hitting the highest targets from an environmental perspective? How can they make sure that they're bringing in the community? So all of the usual rules still apply in terms of commercial-led development. But I think it's certainly risen in prominence. And the other thing, which goes back to one of the points that both Derek and Colleen were saying, is around if you are going to create a campus, you need to create different types of space that cater for a company at different stages of their growth. It's not enough necessarily to have too much of a focus in one area, unless that is essentially the core focus of that location. And there are others around it that are building on it. But I think if you're ever delivering a campus of scale, you need to have that mix. And I think from an investor developer perspective, that's what enables you to be flexible in your approach to a company that comes onto your site, because hopefully you can move the pieces around the jigsaw puzzle and make it all work for the companies that are within the campus, the ones that you want to attract into the site. And Colleen, how feasible is that point on moving occupiers from one place to another? Given how specific some of their needs are, how are you actually able to cater for firms who want to scale up, who want to start small, grow? They might do a series A, series B, then float and then require many, many times more space. How are you able to move them around? Yeah, that's a great question. So from Biomed's perspective and pulling off of Chris's point, over 80% of our leasing volume last year was done with existing tenants. So there is very much a strong... So you didn't need JLL to do that? (laughs) With some help from our friends (laughs) at JLL. (laughs) But there is definitely, you know, the power of the platform and the ability to accommodate a life science company's needs by having that portfolio. And I think the fact that over 80% of our leasing was that type of transaction really speaks to that. 
But it goes back to my point about building for the industry and not for the tenant. You know, if you build a bespoke facility that accommodates just one specific tenant, then you will have a very hard time going ahead and repositioning that and giving it to the next user. And when you build a space like that, it actually doesn't benefit anybody because the tenant, especially the smaller tenants, they don't want to focus on the real estate. They want to focus on the cutting edge research, so life-saving therapies. Our core business model focuses in on the real estate all day, every day. And we have experts, over 200 experts to come to work on this asset class every day. So we know how to achieve their scientific needs within a real estate footprint that's flexible, that accommodates changes to their science throughout their life cycle of tenancy, and also allows us to work with them and partner with them when they need to move from the facility, which is a very typical thing. And are you worried, Colleen, about the sheer amount of commercial office space which other parties are looking to reconfigure over the coming couple of years, both not just in the UK, but also across Boston, New York, and on the West Coast. North America has a lot of vacant office space. And what scope is there to reposition a lot of that for life sciences uses? And does that potentially threaten what you do? Yeah, we actually, especially when the pandemic hit, naturally with the changes in the office market dynamic as a firm, Biomed Realty, we really dug into all of our core markets in an opportunistic way to see if there was office product that could be converted into a high quality lab facility that would meet our requirements. When the pandemic first hit, we all thought that we would find a lot of these opportunities. And actually, as we sharpened our pencil and we looked at what areas were actually zoned for life science, which buildings had enough vacancy to accommodate a footprint that made enough sense to put the lab investment in, and which buildings actually had the right amount of infrastructure where you could deliver a facility that was of a high enough quality to really meet our investment criteria, the list was actually incredibly short. And if you think about a region like Boston, Cambridge, especially operating in an urban environment, when you tour a life science user, the very first thing they want to do is go and see the loading dock. Well, if you don't have ample loading and you can't change the street entryway to the loading dock, you probably can't change that in an urban environment. If you don't have the right floor to floor heights for the facility, you can't change that. You know, you could reinforce some floor loading at a certain cost, but that's naturally an expensive amount of capital. And, you know, then you've got to look at rooftop areas. Do you have an adequate amount of rooftop space? So once you kind of go through that exercise and you make sure that you're able to deliver something that is almost a like new conversion product to attract the highest quality users, the list is very, very short. So it was something we were concerned about it, you know, at the very start. But as we sharpened our pencils and really dug in it, the list is incredibly short. With that said, there are some owners out there that didn't do the same level of diligence that we did in evaluating these. And there are absolutely some office projects being converted to lab that have no business being a lab facility. And in a market where you have a peak tenant demand, you may be able to fill it, but for the long-term residual value of the asset, there's real concern over how some of those products continue to operate as life science buildings. And users are feeling the pain. You know, there's definitely some users here in Cambridge, Mass, who took on some of those facilities and are operating in them and they're finding that they're not efficient and 
they're having challenges. So we feel fortunate that we have the team to do that diligence. I think one of the challenges for our sort of tenant community, you know, if you're a CEO in a life science company that have come to Babraham, there are three P's you've got to worry about. You've got to get the pounds, you've got to find the people, and then you've got to find the place. And being a CEO is trying to work out what am I going to grow into? It must be quite a challenge at the moment because of the lack of demand and nobody really wants to locate. It is really challenging for life science companies to do a major relocation. It's quite disruptive to their science and their capabilities. So does that mean, are you saying in a roundabout way, Derek, that because relocation is such a big hassle that companies will accept secondary or tertiary quality space? No, I don't think it's the quality of the space. I think they will... But will they compromise? Will they say... Yeah, I think they will compromise insofar as they will squeeze into the space that they've got rather than have the space that they need. They will really sort of... Yeah, we've had people saying, any chance we could put some people up in the void, in the roof somewhere, because we need some more space. So I think the point I'm sort of saying is recruiting people now a lot of that has got to be the quality of the working environment and so you've got to think a bit about that what's going to attract people and then suddenly relocating a long way away from where you currently are is going to be a challenging to maintain that recruitment particularly in very buoyant places like cambridge oxford and london where scientists and people in work in laboratories can find other jobs. So I think the point I'm trying to say is something that we've learned is you've got to think for these companies coming on as startups. And remember, we've just launched Live Labs, which is a communal lab space that you can go in for a couple of hours a week, whenever you want to go in. You know, where are they going to grow into? What's their growth trajectory? What space do they need next? And this is why we worked so closely with Biomed. And what we've done with Biomed is to help move those companies within the campus to more suitable accommodation as they grow. It goes back to the original thing about having the right place, the right laboratory space in the right area is let's make sure that we don't build too much early stage space and we've got no grow on space. Let's not grow a load of single occupancy buildings when what we actually need is a bit more startup space. So it's getting that balance right, I think is important. And as I say, I don't think they're necessarily going to take second class sites because I think everybody is trying to do a high quality stuff is going, we're probably squeezing in more people than we would normally want to because... What, what do you do make that? of it, Chris Waters, in terms of this question about people with offices they can't shift, rebranding them, repositioning them as labs? Is that something still happening or has that ship sailed? I mean, it's an interesting point that Colleen mentioned in terms of what's been happening out in the States, because I think we've seen the same thing unfold here in the UK, particularly in the core markets. So when you actually look at the 10, 15 criteria that you need to have in order to deliver a successful wet lab building, they're pretty stringent. You can't really cut corners because the occupier will call that out. So I think we have seen a lot of developers, investors that have been considering that type of opportunity, spending a lot of time, more so than they would have done typically on a normal acquisition for, say, commercial office, pre-acquisition to really be comfortable that all those points are being met. It goes down to longevity, really, in terms of the asset and how long you're holding it for. A lot of people that are coming into this space are long-term holders. So you can't be short-sighted to just think, okay, well, I need to secure tenant A. If they're on a five-year term and then they leave, 
what happens to tenant B if the supply demand dynamics are different to what we're experiencing today. So we are seeing that from an advisory perspective, a lot more focus being put onto it. I think the other thing that we're consistently asked when our clients are looking at new opportunities is they're trying to get comfort around the balance of what the day one specification of a building should be how you can build in as much flexibility to that day one specification over the lifetime of the building and how that then plays back into their revenue assumptions. So you need to have complete alignment between design, specification, cost and revenue, because if one of those is out of sync, you don't have a sustainable investment. So it is certainly difficult. So just to break that down, you mean, I'm going to put words in your mouth, so tell me to shut up if I'm doing it wrong, but you're essentially saying these buildings need to be designed with flexibility in mind so that they can evolve as the occupier evolves, but also at the same point, not over-specified so they're not costing too much money or more money than they need to. Correct. I mean, I think that's certainly true on new build as well as conversions, but I think on conversions, it's an existing building. So you're sort of dealt the hand that you've got in terms of what it is. And so there's only so much pushing and pulling of that building that you can do to build in that flexibility day one. And I think that's why in the same context as what Colleen was explaining in the US, in the UK, there has been a small number of conversion opportunities coming into the market. And I think what will be interesting from a conversion perspective is how that plays out in more urban environments. Because I think unless you've got things like a loading bay, servicing bay, for example, how does that work when you're trying to do that off an adopted highway, which the local council owns, you need to work that through in terms of planning that can create its own challenges in order to make it deliverable. So it's not easy. And I think the occupier is, you know, from our experience, they tend to come in with quite a long list of what they want. But I think actually when you sit down, work through those requirements with them, you can get to a pretty happy medium for both parties, which is delivering a very landlord and tenant friendly specification day one, which will stand the test of time across multiple different parts of the sector, rather than being overly bespoke to tenant A when they come through the door. Mm. And Colleen, just another view that we're interested in from the US really is the effect that some of the repricing in the equity markets has had on life sciences, on the real estate sphere over the last couple of years. So by that, I mean the funding environment for businesses, their ability to IPO and the downward pressure on pricing that we've seen, particularly early stage businesses and in the VC community. Has that fed through at all into real estate demand? And do you see that feeding through here or are we in the UK in very much more of a nascent market than North America. Yeah, we've definitely seen an impact on the tenant demand profile as a result of the funding environment throughout the state. So your point about the public markets and the lack of biotech IPOs here has been very impactful, specifically in Cambridge, Mass, because we used to have a pretty robust IPO market here. And what we're seeing on the tenant demand profile here is we really say it's a barbell for tenant demand. So we're still seeing a lot of really strong activity from the stronger early stage companies, some of the privately VC-backed companies, some of the government-funded companies, NIH-funded National Institute of Health and the states-funded companies. And then we're seeing a little bit of a lull in the mid-tier tenant demand. So those companies that used to be earlier stage or mid-stage public companies are really pressing pause for the time being in cash conservation mode. And then on the other side of the barbell, you're seeing the large pharma, 
that have significant cash reserves and can still move forward and make strategic real estate investments are continuing to see demand in the market. But it is very much a bifurcated tenant demand right now in the States. I would say with regards to Cambridge UK, though, the tenant demand profile has been very, very healthy. I think the main reason is there's always been less reliance on the public markets from a UK tenant demand perspective. And we do see a pretty strong diversity of funding. The venture capital funding continues to pour into the Cambridge and the UK life science ecosystem. There's very strong government support for a lot of these companies. You're seeing the large pharmaceutical companies like AstraZeneca call places like Cambridge UK home. So we're not seeing the same impact to the tenant demand profile. And in fact, you know, the UK market is one of our top performing markets right now from the healthiness of the tenant demand perspective. And I do think too, there's natural barriers to entry to build product specifically in Cambridge, UK. And so you haven't seen that same imbalance between tenant demand and supply as you may have seen in some of the markets in the state. So from a real estate owner's perspective, I think the big issue right now with the UK is that we genuinely don't have enough product to satisfy the current tenant demand. And that's why Biomed We have about a million square feet that we can build in Cambridge, UK on a phased basis that's in various stages of process. But we strongly believe in the industry and we think it's important to deliver that product. Otherwise, you run the risk of losing these companies. The UK runs the risk of losing these companies from the region if they can't get these mission critical facilities up and running. Derek Jones, does the UK government or any parties that might form the next UK government Do any of those folk understand that point that Colleen O'Connor's just made, that if we don't sort our things out from a planning perspective, a development perspective, we're going to lose companies, more companies that we've lost already to North America and beyond? I think they do. I think both. Yeah, I think they understand that we have to do something about it. Are they Whether prepared not, to do anything about it? That, that's, sorry, that's, that's, yeah, that was the point I was going to say. Okay. Can they do anything about it? This is the problem it? of having but, really smart people. They're always one step ahead of the questions. Yeah, but it's, I, I was going to say, <laughs> I think they all get it or they say they get it. But they're not um, prepared to take the decisions is basically what you're about well, to say. Well, I think the decisions are very difficult ones to make. I mean, one of the points that I tried to make when we were talking to the Cambridge Delivery Group, which came to visit us and Peter Freeman, is, you know, there are things that Cambridge need to have, which as, if I put in quotes, developers, we can't be responsible for. Water, connectivity, power, housing, transport, you know, that's a government have to sort that out. And community Um, cinemas showing Will Smith movies probably as well. Exactly. All those sort of (laughs) things. They're not in our gift And so the government of whatever persuasion needs to go, yet we get this, we're going to put the infrastructure in to make this happen. And if there's anything that I hope that the Cambridge Delivery Group get is going, you know, we have got to invest in the transport system. We've got to do this because there is a risk that people will go, do you know what? Cambridge is full up. We won't go to Cambridge. Oh, actually, the UK looks pretty full up. Let's go somewhere else. I don't think people can put their finger on where that's happened now but i absolutely think that's a risk and um, we had peter freeman on propcast a few weeks back i'd encourage you to have a listen to that. it was a fascinating episode peter was a really great guest it was a single take conversation are you saying we're not great guests <laughs> what are you uh, saying uh, andrew <laughs> you've had great uh, guests but not this week is that what you're saying 
No, I'm saying we've got much better looking guests this week, Gary. I'm just interested on this. I'm conscious of time. I'm interested on this point around the government's role. They've set out a vision for Cambridge with 2040 in the title. So God knows where I'll be at that point. But Chris Waters, how achievable is that vision? What needs to happen? And are firms thinking that we're a bit of a risk in terms of committing right now? What Derek said around what's within people's direct control is a very valid point. I think generally the government have been, you know, they've set out the life sciences vision. There's then been a commitment of capital in terms of R&D spending focused on science and technology, all great stuff. More recently, I think some of the biggest things that have been announced was certainly around us rejoining Horizon Europe. I mean, there's no doubt that the whole industry breathe the collective sigh of relief when that happened. It's, and that's uh, a European collective of academics. Yeah, well, it gives us, you know, British scientists direct access to the European market in terms of the actual researchers, sharing of intellectual property, gives us a closer alignment from a regulatory perspective. The total horizon program is just over 95 billion euros. So it's a massive opportunity for us to continue to be on the global stage. And I think that alongside the Mansion House announcement, which was talking about pension reform, I think when you look at those two together, there's some big opportunities for the UK from a science perspective. The pension reforms of those that may not be aware of it is essentially looking at how we can get some of our institutional funds to commit capital directly into growth companies, particularly around science, technology and innovation. So I think that's been a really strong initiative championed by the likes of the Bio Industry Association, which if that all comes through, I think could enable us to compete in a much more competitive way from a funding perspective to what's happening in the States. Some of the issues we've got at the moment is around how do we keep these fantastic companies which are coming out of our leading academic institutions when they're raising companies as younger companies, you know, seed, series A, series B, and then they start looking at the next stage of growth, they're looking to the States. But that's always been the same though, Chris. I mean, that's not a new problem. No, I mean, it's been a long-standing problem, I agree. So I think there's certainly been some great stuff that have come out from the government in terms of commitment. I think in terms of the 2040 vision, as you asked the question specifically on, I think in order to make that type of initiative work, you need a very strong collaboration across all parts of the industry. And that will mean listening to the voices of people on the developer investor side in terms of the ones that are being held responsible for bringing forward the space. You need to understand it from an occupier perspective, but really it quite quickly comes down to some of the bigger ticket items around things like infrastructure and planning. I mean, to deliver the 250,000 homes that seemingly I think will cater to this growth and employment space that we'll see in Cambridge, UK, we need to be able to do that in a timely manner. Otherwise, I think that 2040 target is ambitious. Mm. I mean, how much of a barrier, and this is a question for all of you before we finish, how much of a barrier is the lack of scale we have here? What do you mean by that, Andrew? Lack of scale of companies or lack of scale of ability to grow companies? I suppose everything. I suppose scale from a capital markets perspective, scale in terms of custom. And if I'm developing a drug, in the US or in Asia, I've potentially got a much bigger marketplace to sell my product to. If I get FDA approval and I can sell that across the United States, there's a much bigger customer base for my drug than 
say, the National Health Service in the UK. So it's the scale of customer barrier, scale of capital market. The ability to raise money has long been cited as the reason why firms such as Vertex grow here and then disappear to the NASDAQ. It's the scale in different fronts, I suppose. I think your point about selling drugs into the US versus the NHS, that's always been the case. And most companies will be looking at the US as their first point of market entry. So I don't think you have to be based in the US to service the US healthcare sector. And virtually all the companies on the Babram Research Campus would be looking at the US probably as the first place they'd go to. The NH is challenging for a whole variety of reasons. Fundamentally, the issue is funds, I think. The ability for companies and the risk profile that UK investors are prepared to take to support companies. Invest the money, let the company grow rather than drip feed them bits of money, never gets anywhere. So I think it's a primarily a funding issue. And I think Chris's point about the Mansion House announcement and how that may unlock some money to actually grow this, I think is really positive. So if there is a way that companies could raise the money that they need when they need it, rather than spending so much time trying to raise it, that unlocks a load of stuff, including the ability for people who build in laboratory space to plan for the future because they know these companies are coming along. So it's been an ongoing problem. I'm always very conscious that the UK wears a hair shirt about how rubbish we are at stuff. There is one area we are top at at, and this is life sciences, creating new drugs, finding new opportunities. Yeah, we could always do better, but don't for a moment think we're not very good at it. We're bloody good at it. That's a good way to draw things from end. Final thoughts, Colleen O'Connor. I'm just interested, what are you seeing over the next couple of quarters across the various markets that you have oversight of? How are the UK, East Coast, US, going to evolve as we move into Q1 and Q2 of 2024? Yeah, I think for some of the U.S. markets, and I know Chris touched on this a bit earlier with regards to the supply pipeline coming through, I think what we're finding and what we're analyzing is really bifurcating out that supply. I think there's going to be a continued flight to quality, a continued flight to the core, to the highest quality facilities. And I think you're going to see a big disparity in how certain markets perform. We recently worked on an analysis to look at what we would consider to be isolated locations that aren't part of a campus that aren't necessarily the highest quality facilities. And I think, you know, people see these very large, scary numbers. And once you dive into the details, you realize there's a very big disparity. So I think in the U.S. markets, you're going to see that play out and you're going to see that continued flight to quality. I think in the U.K., you know, U.K. is definitely one of the markets that I am personally most excited about. I think the ability specifically with our biomed platform to deliver the amount of space we've got in the pipeline and to partner with folks like Derek over at Abraham Research Campus, that you can make a really big and meaningful impact on the life science ecosystem in the UK with the right facility. So in terms of where I'm excited to spend my time, I think it's spending time with Derek and the team and helping to build that ecosystem in partnership with folks like Chris. Well, that's exciting. Well, look, fantastic to have you on, Colleen. So Colleen O'Connor, Senior Vice President for Leasing East Coast and UK Markets at Biomed. Chris Waters, Head of Life Sciences at JLL. And the amazing Derek Jones, Chief Executive at Babraham Research Campus. Thank you to all three of you for a fascinating conversation. Great to have you all together and look forward to catching up again. And next time, Colleen O'Connor will absolutely be coming out to Boston to record this 
in the States. And I look forward to doing that very, very soon. Thank you once again to everyone for listening. You can catch up with PropCast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. Do check out that recent episode with Peter Freeman from a few weeks ago. Just search Peter Freeman on the PropCast channel. That will come up. I've been Andrew Teacher from Montford. Lovely to see you all. Lovely to hear you all. Get in touch with any suggestions for guests and we'll see you again very, very soon. Thanks very much for listening.